So let me just give a little bit of a review, and then we'll read the passage for today. And uh, if you remember, there were some problems in the church. They weren't having, uh, everybody wasn't getting fed. There were some problems, and they, there were seven that were chosen. Stephen was one, and we're going to hear about Stephen today, and then we're going to continue on. You guys remember the sneak peek of what happens? This Spoiler alert. We know Stephen's going to get uh, murdered and for his faith, his stand for Christ, and we begin to see that start unfolding today. So we see seven uh, men chosen. Stephen is one of those men that are chosen. So we saw some problems in the church, and then we saw that the apostles still kept their priorities, which was God's word. Remember that? They were keeping God's word as a priority and pointing again to Jesus Christ because God's word points to Jesus Christ. And then we saw that the church was continuing to produce disciples. So we saw that churches are full of problems. Even when you're having problems, it's important to keep those priorities straight. And part of the whole big picture or our purpose is that we would be producing disciples. Does all that ring a bell a little bit? Seem a little bit familiar? Again, today we're going to talk about just the difference between, hopefully what will become clear is the difference between religion and the real thing. And these are the points that we're going to cover. That Jesus is the source of supernatural life. That Jesus offends our religious tendencies. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read the passage for today. I'm going to pray first and then... I'm going to read the passage and explain a little bit, and then we'll dive into those points. If you would pray with me one more time. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for a chance to be together. I thank you for each person that's here. I do thank you that you instituted the, the Lord's Supper communion as a reminder and a memorial. Father, I know I need that reminder, and so I, I thank you the reminder of your son's sacrifice and the life that we've been given because of that. I thank you for these scriptures, uh, in, in particular the scriptures we're going to look at today. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts, in our minds, and we just want to humbly admit that we need you, we need your word. Father, I pray against distraction. I know it's easy to get distracted with the phone or thoughts about tomorrow or uh, details of things around us, but God, we need you. We really do, and I pray that you would just use your word. We need your word. We need your spirit. So God, I pray that you'd protect each mind and heart here today from distractions, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read through the passage. It's Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and then we'll, uh, I'll explain a little bit, and then we'll go into our points. And Stephen full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose from what is called the synagogues of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will, dis 
destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Okay, so just kind of going through uh, and maybe answering a few questions you might have. Remember, they chose, and we believe it was probably seven of the Greekish Jews or Hellenistic Jews, and that's probably what this group was, the synagogue of the freedmen. And so let me explain a little bit what a synagogue was, because we hear that term. And uh, prior to the exile, or remember when Jerusalem kind of got booted out of their land for being disobedient and got spread all over, most people would have believed that that's when the synagogue started. So they didn't have their temple to worship in. They didn't have the place. So what they would do is they would gather together with groups of elders and that they would have a, a group of a community of people and that is where they would spend their time worshiping. And a lot of their worship was through the reading of scripture and through the teaching of different rabbis. And so that's where kind of the synagogue uh, was born most would believe and it really is a i believe it's so cool when you start looking back that god i believe was designing all of the pieces to fit together so that because it's really the precursor precursor to the church the synagogue is kind of like the precursor to our church meetings that we have today and so you have this synagogue or this group these little communities and some people uh, estimate that there were between three and 400 different synagogues in and around Jerusalem at this time. And so there were all these little communities. And one of these little communities was the community or that, you know, we would probably call it the Church of the Freedmen. And what they were, were they were more than likely people that had previously been slaves that had been made free. They were probably taken slaved by uh, the Roman Empire, and that they had been made free. And so you have Stephen, who, remember, what was Stephen elected to do? Anyone remember what Stephen was elected to do? Serve tables, right? But here we see, here even as a, a servant and as a deacon, he's talking about the truth of God's word. And so he's there. He was probably a part of this synagogue, more than likely, like this was his local synagogue, and he begins speaking the truths about Jesus Christ. And so he's, and what ends up happening, they're not liking what's going on and what Stephen's preaching. They have some bones to pick with it. And so when it says that they induced these people, the idea really is that they start bribing people to come up and drum up false accusations against Stephen. And so they, what they're drumming up these false accusations, and they're bringing up, it says false witnesses even, what they're wanting to do is they don't like his message, and they basically want to shut him up. And the message that they're saying, what they're claiming is he's blaspheming God, he's blaspheming this temple, he's blaspheming the customs or the laws of Moses. That's not what he was doing. And we'll explain a little bit about that. But what he was, I believe he was doing, is preaching there's something more than the temple and there's something more than the laws of Moses and the customs of Moses. But that was highly offensive to this group of people. And so I even think that that's part when it says, he, you know, Bible geeks like to, to, to debate over, like, what did it mean he had the face of an angel? And, and they'll go into all these things. I, I believe that there was something physical 
a demonstration upon him, and he had the face of somewhat like an angel, and it says they saw his face as the face of an angel, all who sat in the council. So it wasn't like all the Christians said, doesn't Stephen look like an angel right now? There was the council who said this. The council saw it, and they were realizing it. And I think what they were, I think if they would have been tuned into the clues, what they would have been saying is, this guy is not against Moses. He's similar to Moses because Moses was carrying a message. Moses was carrying truth. Moses was a prophet, but Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet, the one carrying the ultimate truth, and I believe that Stephen was one of those who was giving the message of Christ. And so not against Moses, but similar to Moses. I believe that's part of the picture here. And so as we, as we look at that, we can begin to kind of see that's kind of, the, get, got, kind of got the picture of what's happening here with Stephen. And it's helpful for us to, to look at that. Now, if you look at the verses, uh, I want to make this point, and, and so if you're following along in the notes, that Jesus is the source of supernatural life. Look at some of the ways that Stephen is described in this passage. Earlier, in verses just prior, we had heard that he was uh, filled with the Spirit. Do you remember that? Which means controlled by the Spirit. <clears throat> Here it says he was full of Someone of yours in verse 8, how many Bibles say full of faith? How many say full of grace? How many don't know because I flipped the screen onto a different picture? Okay. So, Stephen, full. I believe that's full of grace. Different uh, translations, uh, they, they, they interpret it differently. And power, and he did great wonders and signs among the people. So, he's full of grace, full of power. He does signs and wonders. It says, the verses we were looking at, they couldn't even argue against him. He was full of wisdom. So does this sound like natural stuff or supernatural stuff? Doing signs and wonders. He's full of grace. And, and the reality of that is, grace is kind of a general word. A lot of times we hear the word grace, and it can mean a lot of different things. It's an undeserved gift, but that gift can be different in a lot of different uh, applications. Paul talks about grace as about having a spiritual gift or spiritual ability. I don't want to say a spiritual talent because that's, that's misleading, but it's a gift of grace that enables you to do things. This is what Paul says, I thank my God for you, he's talking to the Corinthians, and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him, God enriched your church in every way, with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge, now you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's given us spiritual gifts. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given a unique spiritual gift. It's a gift of grace that God has given to you. Stephen was full of grace. I believe he God's empowerment for the glory. That's what a gift is. It's something, an empowerment that God gives you for His glory. A gift is an empowerment that God gives you for His glory. I think that's what was happening here with Stephen. 
All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Do you know that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been given every spiritual blessing you need? A lot of times we pray and we say, God, thank you for this meal. God, thank you for this house. God, thank you for allowing me not to break down on the road. And those are all, I, I pray those prayers too. But do you know the, really the biggest blessings we have are the spiritual blessings? Eternal life, forgiveness, hope, God's presence. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And so when I, when I put the, this slide together, Jesus is the source of supernatural life. I want to make a point here because I'm not saying God is the source or Christ is the source of eternal life. He is the source of eternal life. But a lot of times when we think eternal life, we think, oh, good, whew. I get to live forever. I don't have to go to hell. I get to go to heaven. No, he gives supernatural life that even affects us now. And so that's what I believe the, when the point is being made here. I mean, the, Luke wasn't just writing this stuff like, let me think of a bunch of really good descriptive words. Grace, that's a beautiful sounding word. Power, that's a great sounding word. Full of wisdom, I'm going to throw that in there. No, he's describing a person who signs and wonders, that'll really dazzle the people. He's describing someone who has been completely transformed from something natural and something supernatural is going on with him. And, and my point here on this is God has done the same thing for us because Jesus Christ provides us with supernatural life and spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing. So as we look, it's Stephen, we can go, wow, how amazing, the face of an angel. But God has given us supernatural life. Said that he gave him power. And this is what Paul says about us believers. God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity. He hasn't made us a bunch of chicken hearts, right? But of power, love, and discipline. Lion-hearted. That's what he's given us. So to understand that through Jesus Christ, we are given supernatural life. And, and I think as we look at uh, Stephen, it's helpful for us just to, to reflect on the reality that part of what was going on in, in Stephen's life, through Stephen, with Stephen, was he had been touched by the very life of Jesus Christ. And I think that he wasn't, they weren't even able to argue, it says, with him, right? Did you, do you remember reading that? I think that Stephen probably spent some time. He had probably, like the other disciples, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. He probably spent some time in God's word. But it says that he was full of wisdom. Now, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is the living it out, to the applying it of the truth or the knowledge, Right? You could look at the example of having a difference between knowledge and wisdom in driving a car. You could look at a manual and go like, yeah, I can see how to drive this car. You push the clutch. I mean, that was back in the old days. You push this clutch or you pull this lever. Or maybe even you, you, you understand the principles and you've actually driven a car around the parking lot. And then there's wisdom in applying it. That the wisdom is driving the car in a safe manner, driving the car according to the rules of the road. 
A lot of us, we, we want Bible knowledge, but that really isn't adequate if it's not mixed with wisdom. And so it's important for us to understand this is what we see happening with Stephen. It's not just that he was under the disciples' teaching or apostles' teaching and he had a bunch of knowledge. There was something dynamic, something supernatural going on in Stephen's life. And Stephen is a great example for us. He's, gonna, he's going to make the ultimate sacrifice for his Savior. And I believe that part of the reason he would be willing to make this ultimate sacrifice and not hedge back and chicken out when faced with death is because he had experienced true supernatural life internally. There was a transformation that had happened. And so we see with these, I believe, these, these, the council members, they probably were not experiencing that same thing. We can see a stark difference, I believe, in the, the, the qualities, the character, the fruit in Stephen's life in these council members. They were going with what was old. They were going with the shadow. They were going with the FaceTime, and Stephen was experiencing the real thing, true supernatural life. And let me just say this. You think, well, yeah, if, I, if we've all been given gifts, then how come I don't see what's going on with my gift? Or how come I don't see uh, God's grace dynamically, you know, uh, being wrought out in my own life? Well, one, God was working in a really special dynamic way in Acts to endorse and say, hey, I'm in on this thing. This isn't some freaky deal. God's hand is on this big movement. So that's one reason. But we shouldn't just discount it. The other is because Stephen was living for Christ's purposes. And so those talents and those abilities, or not even talents, those supernatural traits were being manifest out in his life. And so we could have somebody here, we can have an artist, let's say, best artist around. If I have that guy out digging ditches, we're probably not going to see his artistry. We could have the world's best athlete here. And if I got him trying to figure out calculus equations, we're probably not going to see his athleticism. And the same is true for us as Christians. If we're Christians busy living for ourselves, we're probably not going to see the gifts, the talents, the traits, the supernatural life of Christ being manifest in us. It doesn't mean that we haven't got it. Just like the, the artist is an artist, even if I hand him a shovel and go tell him to dig a ditch, he still has those things. And so for a lot of this, it, it, it is um, enacted or it is, uh, I want to say like it's the catalyst. The catalyst is actually living for Jesus Christ so that that life is seen. <clears throat> Jesus offends our religious tendencies and, and just the reality of this. If I could simply say the difference, what religion is, and I understand sometimes scripture talks about religion. But when I'm talking about religion, our religious tendencies, here's what I mean. Uh, let me ask you a question first. In your mind, does religion have a good connotation or a bad connotation? Mostly bad, right? We, mostly bad. There may be a, a few people that think religion is you know, a good, positive thing. But mostly we have this idea of it as being bad. Around the concept of religion and how we're using it, at the root of it is works 
The root of it is self-righteousness. And the root of it is the idea that I bring myself to God instead of God bringing himself to me. So at the heart of religion, the way I'm using it, is that I can be good enough. And Jesus offends that whole concept. And that's why a lot of times we, as Christians, we, we want to make ourselves seem better or holier than thou because it makes us feel good about ourselves. That was never God's plan at all. In fact, even the things he got on him about were the temple, right? They were trying to get on Stephen about his teaching about the temple and the law. So I'll go into that a, few, a little bit more in a minute here, but the, really the whole idea of the temple is it's somewhere you can go to be close to God. It's something you can do. I'm going to the temple today. The law of Moses is something that you could strive for or carry out or work for. And so the whole idea is it's something you can do or you can produce in yourself. And that's just not the way it works. Here's what salvation through Christ is. God saved you by his grace when you believed. Grace. Undeserved gift. When you believed. When you put your trust in him. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. God doesn't want us to be able to brag about our salvation. No one brings themselves to God. God doesn't want us to be able to go, oh, yep, check it out, look what I did. And I'll tell you what, this is the biggest lie, the biggest lie, the biggest lie out there, and we battle it in here. And that is somehow we can make ourselves good enough to be saved. That we somehow have some kind of righteousness to offer God. That somehow if we just change our ways, God will be pleased with us. It doesn't work that way. It's all dependent on Jesus Christ. Religion says, I can change something, I can do something, I can quit something, I can start something, I can try something, I can improve, and God will be pleased with me. That's anti-Christ. That's against Christ. The message of Christ is, I can't, so he did. And that's the truth of the matter. That's life in Christ. And that's why I say that's the, the, the religious things, and I'm, I'm not against the law. God, God gave these things. It's like a flashlight. It's good. FaceTime, good. We don't complain about those things, but it's not the real thing. Jesus Christ provides the answer. God doesn't want us to be able to take one ounce of credit for our salvation. Not one ounce. Not one ounce of credit for our own salvation. Because then that makes it about us. He did it so no one can boast about it. 2 Corinthians 3.5, it's not that we think we are qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from where? God. Where's the boasting? What are you going to brag about? Nothing. It's excluded. By what law? Of what works? No, but by the law of faith. In other words, it's by belief in Jesus Christ, trusting Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure that message is clear. I, I give it over and over, and it's the most muddled, confused Message out there, and I'll hear it all the time. But, but you know, we, we do something for it, right? Like, you understand. No, we don't. 
None of us, and, and there are people in here with great temperaments. There are probably the majority of you have a better temperament than me. And Rob, me and Rob are, me and Rob got, me and Rob have a similar temperament, I think. We talk about this, don't we, Rob? I'm not throwing them under the bus. <laughs> Some of y'all are just naturally more fun, happy, sweet people than us. And I love Rob because I can relate to Rob. But you know what? The fun, happy, sweet people don't nat aren't, aren't naturally closer to God. And sorry if I kind of roped you in with me. I'm sick of always being the one. But, but the reality is, those people are, just because God gave them a certain temperament, a certain personality, they, they are no closer to God. They're not made any more righteous than, than those of us who start out with some, maybe speaking only for myself, some pretty damaged personality traits. Okay, thank you. Thank you, D. D's rounding interference for me a little bit. Uh, so, so the reality of that is we have to understand that. And, and I understand it's great to have a, a charming, nice, sweet, fun, happy-go-lucky, kind, sweet, generous personality. That does not make you any closer to God. And in fact, sometimes God is more glorified in making small changes in the ill-suited personality person than he is just the, the person who's a natural sweetheart. The point being that it really it has only to do with putting our faith in our Savior. Our Savior is the one who makes the difference. He's the real thing. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Justified means made holy. No one here is made holy by being good. Not one person. The best do-gooder in the room stinks as much as their good deeds stink as much as the, the dirtiest, rottenest person in the room. That's offensive. We don't like that. But you don't know how hard I work. You're right, I don't. It still stinks and it still falls short. But Jesus Christ's sacrifice is perfect. And that's why we put our faith in Him. We put our faith in who He is. We put our faith in His work. Because that's something that we can all win on. We can't win on our own merit. He doesn't even want us to count our own merit. He saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, given us new birth and new life. New birth is not because of any righteous acts on our own. It's because we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's our Savior. That's the whole idea. He's a rescuer. If you could do it yourself, you wouldn't need a rescuer. People get offended with this, and I believe that's what happened to these guys. They, they kind of like the idea of like, what do you mean we're not going to be able to do it ourselves? And this is a lengthy passage, but I want to read it because I think it, it describes the, the problem with our religious, and I'll just say this, I think all of us carry a little bit of religiosity inside of us. Uh, whether you're a rule follower, not a rule follower, we all carry a little bit of wanting to earn it ourselves. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the very power of God, and the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the 
the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world to look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. And that, if you really think about it, this celebration, this ceremony we participated in this morning, really, if you just look at it and not from the tradition, from the custom, it seems a little nuts if you don't understand what it's all about. That we're celebrating someone who was murdered horribly and gave up his life. That sounds a little bit like why in the world it sounds like foolishness to the rest of the world. But we know that it, 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 it's more than that. It's about what Christ did on the cross and the dynamic work that he did and accomplished. So it seems foolish to those who don't get it. But we do this because we know the reality of what it means. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, a few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things of this world considers foolish in order to shame those who think that they are wise. And he chose the things that were powerless to shame those things that were powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself, Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. I want to just make this point here. It's warm in here. The, the, these are spiritual truths we're talking about. We've already had communion. We're thinking of having a, a, a little celebration afterwards. But if we'll just take a second to realize and to concentrate on the reality that there is nothing we can do to bring ourselves to God. God has already brought himself to us in Jesus Christ. What he wants us to do is to put our trust in Jesus Christ. And you say, well, I've already done that. I did that 15 years ago. I put my trust. He wants us to continue to trust Christ for our righteousness today. You don't start out and go, whoo, saved, made new. Now i got to get to work and do it all myself. We continue to trust that he's, what he's done day after day after day. We continue to walk in the holiness that he's given us. We continue to walk in the forgiveness that he's provided for us. Last, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And so again, the idea of the... Uh, I'm going to make this point quickly here, but the idea of the temple and you go back to even the tabernacle, the idea was that it was God's presence. That was what was so special about the temple. In fact, God said when he said, I want you, Moses, here's I want you to build a tabernacle. Here's why. Why did he want him to build a tabernacle? To have a cool fort, a cool hangout, a special building? Was that what the tabernacle was about? No. 
He said, because I want to dwell among you. I want to come and live with you. That's what the tabernacle was about. And what was the law about? It was about the righteousness of God. Him saying, I want to demonstrate what righteousness, holiness looks like. And so what they were arguing about Stephen about, because remember Christ had said, I'm, my temple's going to be destroyed, but I'm raising it back up. And then they're like, oh, he's preaching against the temple. He wasn't preaching against the temple. But you know there's no temple today? And I think I've told you before, I asked a, a Jewish guy on a plane one day, like, how do you guys worship? Because it says that you guys have to do all these things according to the temple. He's like, well, we just try and do good works, and we try and do these things now. Uh, we say our prayers. But your guys' whole thing was based on temple before and sacrifices. You guys aren't doing that. And I believe that the temple is done away with, and the law of Moses has been superseded because Christ replace those things we have God's presence and we have God's righteousness in Jesus Christ you ever want to feel like God's with you you ever kind of wonder I wonder if God's with me if you have Jesus Christ we are the temple this building is not a temple of God we really appreciate all the cleaning the stuff that was done it's nice we're, we're grateful for it but it's not where God dwells. God dwells in us because of Jesus Christ. That wasn't what was happening until Jesus Christ. So Christ has made that clear that, that he is what allowed God's presence, that he is what brings God's righteousness. And again, uh, just as we begin to wrap up here, point being that Christ is not the culmination, or I'm sorry, is not the addition of God's fulfillment. It's not like, let me add this too. I'm going to add one more thing. You had the temple, you had the sacrifices, you had the Ten Commandments. Let me add one more thing. I want to add Jesus Christ. It's not that. And that's what a religious person would think. Okay, you had the temple, you have the Ten Commandments, you have church attendance, you have this, you have that, and then you have Jesus. You add all those things in and you're on track. And what he's saying is all of those things are pointing to one person, Jesus Christ. Religion is about the customs. Religion is about the tradition. Religion says that we can do it. The real thing is it has been done in Jesus Christ, that he provides supernatural life, that he's the one who's already fulfilled all of God's promises. All the pictures, what did a sacrifice do? It forgave the people's sins for one year. Right? They would forgive it. They, put out, they would put their hand on the goat's head or whatever through the priest, and they're basically putting all the sins onto that one goat. Then they slaughter the goat, and they're like, whew, we put all our nasty old dirty sins on that goat, and then the goat got uh, sacrificed, so all our sins died with it. That was a picture of what Jesus Christ has done, and that's why in Hebrews it talks about, hey, they got to keep doing this. They had to keep doing that year after year after year, as soon as they did that, there was probably someone sinning as soon as that guy's hand went off. They were racking up sins for the next year. But the reality of it is, is that one sacrifice by Jesus Christ took care of all sin for all time. Boy, those, that council did not want to hear that kind of news. That blows our whole program out of the water. That takes away anything we do for it. And they get so mad 
that they end up killing Stephen over this. This is a big deal. It's a big, it's a big moment in God's plan, God's redemptive plan for history to move from the Old Testament, Old Covenants, Old ways to the new, and that's Jesus Christ. But it was God's plan all the way through. We can look back and we can see his fingerprints on these things that he had already instituted, all those clues that he was giving us so that we wouldn't miss it. But the culmination of it is in Jesus Christ. And so I just want to make this point as we wrap up. You know, I don't know what you're putting your hope in, what you're putting your trust in. You know, maybe it's religion, maybe it's church attendance, maybe it's in this church, maybe it's in your own strength, maybe it's in your good deeds, maybe it's in trying hard, maybe it's in kicking the smoking habit, maybe it's in uh, quitting cussing, maybe it's in starting to give money, maybe it's in just doing better, maybe it's in reading your Bible. That's all religious stuff. Quit smoking, read your Bible. Great, that's awesome. I'm all for it. That's not what it's about. It's about Jesus Christ because he gives supernatural life. If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, you're largely, hugely, eternally missing the boat. That message was offensive because we want a little something to do with it. He's like, it's not about quitting this habit or starting that or doing this. It's about Jesus Christ. So my point is to remember to put your trust in Christ. And Colossians 127 says, Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. Christ in you, not your own work, your own effort. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for the eternal life we have because of him. And I feel like my, I, my I not I feel like my words, Father, are so inadequate when it comes to this. I know I don't even get it completely. But I pray that you would allow it to sink in deeper to my own heart, my own mind, my own living. And the same for every person here, Father. That we would not trust in ourselves, not trust in our works, not trust in our behavior, not trust in anything. More than we trust in your Son. And that we would just pour our hope into your Son. And that we would live enjoying you because of what your Son has already accomplished, Father. Please help us to get that in a deep level. Again, we thank you for the celebration of communion. We thank you for this church. We thank you for your word. We thank you for time to hang out. And I really do thank you for each person that makes up this body, Father. Thank you for all the people you pulled together for this to make this little local church. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.